I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Goals on Saturday, clean sheets on Sunday. But what's been this year's constant in the Premier League? Ambiguity at the top. Arsenal and Leicester tied for first coming into the weekend, remain even after matching draws, allowing Manchester City and Spurs, perhaps, to muck up the title-chasing waters. Elsewhere, Newcastle is surging, Aston Villa is scrounging as the relegation race continues to morph, while controversial goals at Stamford Bridge and Villa Park kept the officials' eyesight in full view. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the World Soccer Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. We're going to talk about all that, update you on Spain and the championship, and look toward the week's FA Cup action. But as I bring in my co-hosts, Karta Krishnar and Lawrence McKenna, our focus shifts to the weekend's marquee match. Liverpool and Manchester United met for the 166th time in league play at Anfield on Sunday, and Lawrence... For all the moment-to-moment combativeness in this match, it was still decided by one late, isolated Wayne Rooney goal. What did you make of Manchester United's 1-0 win over Liverpool? Yeah, um, actually, when you say isolated, I think a lot of that uh, links to the wider narrative for both clubs this season. Liverpool concede a lot um, from set pieces, and Kartik's been you know, highlighting that for ages now. I think a lot of analysts have, but I think especially Kartik's analysis has been good of it. I think, uh, you know, Liverpool's unstructured, but kind of free-flowing at times attack is probably a good thing to take from that. But ultimately, it was the things that people have been pointing out consistently. It's almost like, well, how are they supposed to fix that immediately? Um, And most of the answer does seem to be Jurgen Klopp most of the time and coaching. But after a while, that gets a little bit frustrating to say as an analyst, because well, you can't keep writing the same article or doing the same podcast every week. No, we cannot. Although we seem to try. We seem we to try could. very hard to yeah. do that. So why don't we narrow you it on that? You keep downloading it, idiots. Yeah, we keep saying the same things. As long as you keep doing one, we're going to do the other. Uh, Kartik, why don't we try to change gears a little bit? Let's zero in on that one thing that Lawrence did highlight, set-piece defending. Um, we see Liverpool, almost every time they give up a corner, it becomes a very dramatic moment in their matches. Even in this match today... Manchester United's only shot on target was Wayne Rooney's goal at the end off a corner kick. What do you think the problem is there for them? Well, I think that there's some adjustment. Klopp likes to have his his defenders, his, his center backs, zonal mark. And then when you see midfielders losing their runners, losing their mark, uh, the, the midfielders for Liverpool I'm talking about are, are, are attacking players in, in this uh, uh, the system, what, what, what you want to call a 4-3-3 or four six zero or whatever it is or that Christmas tree. Yeah. Whatever it is that Liverpool is playing uh, tactically. <laughs> I mean, and maybe that's something we can get into another time, but I, I think 
you're seeing consistently because he's shuttling guys in and out of the team. And it's guys, it's not uh, Sacco and Colo Torre who are getting beaten on set pieces or pri- from prior to that, Lovren and Skirtle. It is uh, Henderson, it is Lalana, it is Milner, it is guys that uh, are midfielders who are losing their mark. I, honestly, I don't know who was marking uh, uh, who was marking Rooney, although I do know Henderson was marking Fellaini, which is a mismatch. And the, the, the goal was created by Fellaini getting free on the set piece. So, uh, and... It's just been a bugaboo all season long for Liverpool and another set-piece breakdown. And, and Klopp was very, very kind of uh, aghast after the match, saying, again, we got beat on a set-piece. That's been the story of the season or the story since he got there. Well, another story since they got there has been the injuries. You highlighted the injuries to Skirtle and Lovren when talking about their set-piece defending. We can highlight the injuries going forward. Uh, Daniel Sturridge, for example, not being available pretty much throughout Klopp's time at Anfield. Lawrence, and it sets up the tension that we've already alluded to. How much of what we're seeing from Liverpool is the adjustment to Klopp or the adjustment Klopp needs to continue to make? And how much of it is this this lack of top-flight talent being exposed right now? Well, with the reemergence of Brendan Rodgers this weekend on Sky's goals on, goals on Sunday and the revisionism or uh, truthful out with which he came onto the show and sort of Defensiveness. said... Defensiveness. Uh, yeah, the de- <laughs> which is ironic, um, d- that he came to the... Sh- that he brought to the show. Um, he, it, it's tempting to go one way, but I think that the way that I would probably go is Liverpool... Uh, I mean... When they first signed Lowe's players, people were like, that's an astute signing. It's money ball. It's all these kind of things. And then over time, when it doesn't turn out to be that, or people sort of forget the, you know, the, the rules of what Liverpool maybe want to try and do, then they, they just sort of go, well, then players aren't good enough. Sell them, turn it over. Klopp needs his guys, those kind of things. And I'm tempted to say similar that Klopp does need some more of his own players. But at the same time, Manchester United only had one shot on target uh, against Liverpool today. Mm. So those two centre backs, did a pretty reasonable job, like a, apart from that, uh, apart from the the set piece. I know that you could say, well, a reasonable job is a is a um, a clean sheet, but then you got front as well, and you know Liverpool. That's the end. I think that was the real issue because Liverpool created chances today, but nothing that seemed clean cut enough to force a goal. And they had to make saves. Whatever you'll see that in the statistics, but he didn't have to make any saves that were anything particularly meaningful. I think it was one from Henderson, mm. and. Apart from that, the Lalana chance doesn't count. A long Emery Chan shot doesn't really count. And, it, you know, Liverpool, again, look pretty blunted. But then they bring on Benteke late and just start floating the box, balls into the box. There's not much consistency or form to what Liverpool were doing. And that seems to be part of the problem is I think all the experimentation does, well, sometimes experiments go wrong. Hmm. And, I, you know, at the moment, I'm, I'm not sure that Liverpool fans want to see the kind of the same kind of experimentation that Jurgen Klopp is doing. I think that there's a bit of disjunction between the two. You're right. Sometimes experiments do go wrong. And Kartik, I think that's something we actually alluded to on last uh, Sunday's podcast, the one uh, you were out on. So it was Nipun, me and Lawrence. And Nipun had a moment where he basically asked why. I think so much spending by the Premier League teams isn't translating into, from my point of view, quality. And I think that's almost a separate discussion. I think it's tempting to look at a a team like Liverpool and see where they've spent so much at various places throughout their team and infer that the talent must be there because they've spent the money. 
But I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I don't necessarily think just because these players commanded a lot of money when they were coming from Aston Villa and Southampton means that they're going to contribute to the next Liverpool team that's going to qualify for Champions League. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, to me, Lalana is one of the most frustrating players. and He's one of the most expensive guys in that side. He's uh, everything he seems to do in uh, up until the final third makes sense. He looks like uh, that, that great next English player that we've heard people talk about uh, from his time at Southampton with Pochettino and now, now coming to Liverpool. And then he just seems to make bad decisions on the ball, or doesn't have the finishing ability in the final third. And I think that there are a lot of and I hate to make reference to, to Brendan Rodgers' interview on Sky because I thought a lot, most of it was self-serving. But he <laughs> did talk about the fact that they were um, spending uh, on guys that were all under the age of 24, that that was the philosophy of the club. So essentially, even though you're spending a lot of money in the transfer window and you're probably paying premium prices, particularly for guys coming from within the league, you are spending money on guys that are unfinished products. Whereas the excessive money that you see Chelsea, although maybe that's a bad example this season, but uh, Manchester United, Manchester City spend are on guys that are basically finished products. And Arsenal have bought two players, uh, have bought three players in the last three years, three significant players. That's it. Mesut Ozil, Alexis Sanchez, Petr Cech, arguably the only three world-class players in, in the Premier League or three of maybe five world-class players in the Premier League. So but that's to complete a squad that they right, considered right, correct, to be correct. buying but a that's speculative team. That even though Rogers interview was self-serving, we have to, we have to take that part about how, what their buying policy was, what their transfer policy was, apply it to this side and say, well, you know what? Jurgen Klopp has inherited a team with a lot of unfinished products and a lot of guys that have uh, deficiencies in their game. And, if Klopp is going to have the sort of side at Liverpool that he had at Dortmund, he's going to have to be given the ability to buy uh, beyond what Liverpool bought for Rodgers. Yeah, that's a great point, that's particularly not, considering. No, it isn't. Well, no, no, particularly, no, it isn't. Cons- particularly considering Arsenal's spending policies before the last two years, you can argue that they were very much like the policies that Rodgers was talking about with Liverpool, where so many people complained about Arsene Wenger buying players that were young and that were going to be good three or four years from now. But entailed in that is that some of those players are never are not going to work out like you think they will. Maybe your evaluation process of how you're identifying these players, maybe your money ball technicians aren't as technically proficient as you as you're hoping they are. Go ahead, Lawrence. Well, I mean, first of all, there's the there's the factor of coaching in there, and the fact that so many of these players drastically improved already in the club. Lovren looks like a changed player. Skirtle looks more confident. Sacco is actually Lovren happy doesn't look necessarily better than he did at Southampton or Leon, though. But I, but he still looks better than he did under Rodgers. And so you, you're taking him back to the level that he never was under Rodgers. Lucas looks improved. Alan looks improved. Uh, you'd even say that the, the vision of some of the players up front, James Milner is willing to work outside of the remit that he was promised by Rodgers. There's a number of things in there. Maybe Benteke doesn't look well, so Well, I think, I think most, managers, most managers would figure out a way, especially in an English game where you need a guy who's a ball winner. And I think he, was, he had an absolutely brilliant, at least for 60 minutes today. Uh, Lucas Leva is a guy that there's a reason why he's lasted through all these managers at Liverpool and he's been with the club yeah. now, it seems, an eternity, eight years. Good managers will figure out a way to use him. Rodgers didn't. So I don't know if Klopp necessarily need, deserves credit for that. Maybe he does, uh, but he I has th- brought Lucas back to a level. You're right on, on him specifically to the level we saw uh, under Kenny Daglish and under Rafa Benitez with him. 
Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, Lucas is an attacking midfielder. Uh, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be arguing against what Rogers has said. I understand the context with which it's said in, but it's almost like I, I don't see any point in arguing with that. We know mm-hmm. that there's a mixture of truth and, um, you yeah. know, his own benefit within that. I, I like Rogers. I think he's a nice guy, but I, I don't understand you know the way he comes out with that today because he talks about a philosophy that he wholeheartedly believes in and then a few months later goes and undermines <laughs> it i understand that might be part of his job but you know if, if if you come out with this document and all those other things and you know you're willing to go to a club uh, and and uh, take part in the money ball and all those kind of things you only have yourself to kind of blame when you for months you've been trying to convince the press and everything else do you know what i mean it doesn't make much sense to me the, 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 there's disjunction it, it, it's just unusual the point would be back on the pitch there are improvements for Liverpool there are things that I think are positive that doesn't mean they're the finished product but I still think they look and, and have a better temperament than they do in the Rogers. all those kind of things and it, it seems that there's more horizons for Liverpool to operate on now you'd argue that a lot of the top players that uh, Klopp brought to Dortmund uh, they were not already a finished product and so Liverpool are looking to do similar here Maybe they have cheap owners that are not, uh, they're clearly not because they spent a lot of money, but maybe they have owners who are looking to operate on the cheap at times. But even then, I still think the point stands, this is a work in progress. But even then, that doesn't mean today's result was good enough for Liverpool. But but regarding results, and of course, results do matter for a team that is within reach of Europe, is still within reach of Champions League and all of the benefits that go with each of those things, particularly because of that standing there's this temptation to look at things in terms of wins and losses or even how players are improving in the short term. And Lawrence, I want to get your feelings on this dichotomy, the idea that this season should be about discovery and knowledge. Even if those discoveries are bad discoveries, you find some players aren't fitting. This, the rest of the season should be about that over the wins and the losses. And in that sense, you still got some positives out of today's results, positives being that you know that the questions that you have going forward in terms of goal scorers are pretty legitimate questions. Well, that, I mean, that's part of football, I guess, is a mix of the two. That's what makes me a bad pundit. I'm way too theoretical. And what makes uh, you know certain managers really good practically and what makes people talk about Pep in such a way. You know, they're finishers. They're closers. They're the kind of guys that Alex Baldwin likes, you know, because they always are closing. And it makes sense because it's a mixture of the practical and the theoretical. Well, it makes side. sense because this game comes down to goals, and that we weren't. Yep, exactly. Uh, exactly. What I, what I'm saying is, I don't think that we can therefore just leave it as a theoretical season. There has to be something that's held to account. There has to be some yeah. sort of pressure put on because if you just are, Liverpool can't operate in a vacuum, and if they do, then next season is is another excuse season because it's well, this is actually the first season that Klopp has now. And then the season after that becomes, well, this is the first true season where we can. And so there's never a barometer. And then you're in his fourth year and he's gone. Hmm. So we're going to be in a similar position. I, I sense we're going to be in a similar position talking about Chelsea the same way the rest of the season. Because even though they are in the relegation fight, they're probably not going to get relegated. So we're going to say, well, we're just going to have this assumption they're, they're going to flip it on next year. And how do we judge their results next season based on comparison to this season or based on comparison to their the net spend that that's i think so both liverpool and chelsea might fall into this discussion i think in time a lot of clubs are going are to fall into that discussion because they've been spending their way and 
uh, you know, PRing their way around a, a lot of problems which are happening at the moment at their club. And Chelsea should have had a lot of huge questions asked about them years ago, considering the billion that's been spent at the club. Mm-hmm. Well, the Northwest Derby was one of the weekend's more even matches, but in an explosive 22nd round of league action, it was also one of the few that failed to give us multiple goals. That outburst started on Saturday when Tottenham scored three times in the second half at White Lark Lane to post a 4-1 win over Sunderland. Manchester City got little resistance from Crystal Palace in a 4-0 victory at the Etihad. Newcastle's dominant start carried them through in a 2-1 win over visiting West Ham. Southampton got a brace from Jack Ward-Prowse in a 3-0 win over West Brom, and Bournemouth was in control throughout during their own 3-0 victory over Norwich. Chelsea got a controversial 98th-minute goal from John Terry to salvage a 3-3 draw with visiting Everton, while Aston Villa and Leicester wrapped up Saturday's slate with a 1-1 at Villa Park. On Sunday, United finished their season sweep of Liverpool with a 1-0 win at Anfield, while Stoke and Arsenal played to a scoreless draw at the Britannia Stadium. That result left Arsenal at the top of the league with 44 points, even with Leicester, but Manchester City is now within a point thanks to their five-match unbeaten run. Tottenham is within five in fourth place. At the bottom of the league, Aston Villa is still last with 12 points through 22 rounds. Sunderland slides into 19th, only six points better, while Swansea was in the league's last relegation spot ahead of Monday's game against Watford. When we come back, we're going to jump back to the top of the standings and talk about results for the league's title contenders, Arsenal, Leicester, and Manchester City. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Let's go to the top of the table. Arsenal, nil-nil result at Stoke City. Lawrence, listening to some of the reactions after this one, people seem pretty deferential to the fact that Stoke City is a tough team and getting a result out of here, one that puts you back on top of the table, is a good one. But part of me just wonders if one of these teams between Arsenal, Leicester, anybody is ever going to step forward and really assert themselves as the title favorite this year. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I I don't appreciate the over-personification of teams sometimes mm-hmm. and when they sort of say who's going to assert themselves i know we mean as a group of players but i still feel like uh, because of the nature of the league and, and maybe even the insular nature of the club in internally they do that it's just maybe externally yeah, sometimes but it's just it's happen. just a metaphor for basically playing better yeah i just wonder if there's better metaphors i mean god i'm, I'm really sort of angry this week aren't i um <laughs> But the, the, the point would be, I think a lot of people are sort of, they see Stoke as this hoodoo club for Arsenal. I think the hoodoo to some extent still exists, but the club's completely changed in that time. The only thing that exists is everyone still seems to remember that leg break. You know, even the Stoke fans yeah. remember that leg break. And for some reason, boo him. I don't know why. Why would you boo someone who broke his leg at your stadium? Um, so it, it's it's unusual. I, and I, but I think Arsenal, uh, you know, they can go toe-to-toe with anyone uh, in terms of playing football. Um but actually, I feel they'll be disappointed with this because Stoke are susceptible to conceding right now. And I understand they beat other top sides. But if you look at the results, then it's not like Stoke don't concede in matches. They, they, you know, they conceded to Doncaster. They conceded to Norwich. They conceded to West Brom. They conceded to Liverpool. In fact, I'm funny, it very, the last game that they didn't concede in was a month ago. Hmm. And, and they've t- had six games in that time. Yeah, And we've talked before about their trouble scoring goals, even though they're trying to evolve their style and get to a point where they can be more, po- more potent going forward. Kartik, 
I guess Lawrence picked up on this too. I'm having a hard time actually reading whether Arsenal is disappointed or not in this, particularly with Leicester's result coming yesterday. And they knew that if they won, they would put two points between them and second place. Not getting three here, it just, particularly against a Stoke team that's just not that threatening right now. It, if it's not disappointing, to me, it's at least a missed opportunity. Right, and this Stoke team, I, I should uh, remind everybody, didn't have Shakiri today, and that and he was the key guy in driving them to, to beating Manchester City and Manchester United. That having been said, they opened up both City and United, who were title rivals at all. You can laugh about me saying Man United's a title rival, but they are. Just look at the table and look at their squad, and this season in the Premier League, they could win the title. Now, I'm not saying they will, but they could. Arsenal, uh, obviously, at the back, kept a clean sheet. Peter Cech, uh, outstanding once again and, and making all the difference and, and proving Wenger absolutely correct that that was the most important buy he could possibly make this summer. That having been said, uh, there was very little input going forward, very little sense of urgency from Arsenal, very little uh, wanting to take this by the scruff of the neck the last 10 minutes of the game, claim the three points, have a smash and grab, and put some distance between yourself and, and Leicester City and Manchester City and the, and the chasing pack. So, uh, I guess from that perspective, it, it, it again probably speaks to Arsenal's mentality and why so many people continue to question the Gooners' title credentials. Well, if we question Arsenal's mentality, we can go to Leicester and question their experience. Uh, for most of the game at Villa Park, they were the better side. Uh, a missed handball call in the 75th minute allowed Rudy Justed to score that equalizer late. Villa gets a point. Uh, it kind of says something to them that almost any draw at this point is disappointing because they need three points to start making up those gaps. But the disappointment here, Kartik, is really going to lie with Leicester City, a, a team that could have put this game away multiple times before that goal, most notably Riyad Mahrez's uh, penalty kick that Mark Bunn saved in the first half. It's really difficult for me to get too upset about Leicester. Well, I'm not, I don't ever get upset about anything. There's a metaphor too that, yeah, that goes around. hyperbolic. It's, it's really difficult for me to dig too deep on this Leicester team, knowing that this is the first time they've been in this situation. And also, we've been expecting some regression from them. But Kartik, just like with Arsenal, if it's not disappointing, it is a missed opportunity. Well, I think it's disappointing for all of us uh, who are not Arsenal fans because uh, I, I think most people do want to see Leicester win the title or at least stay in this race this season. Obviously, I'm pulling for City to win the title, but if City doesn't win the title and Leicester does, I'm not going to complain. Uh, this game felt like one of those games in November or December, like against Newcastle away and Swansea away, where Swansea, where uh, excuse me, the Foxes were so cl- clinical on the counter. And when they got their opportunities before you, you knew it, they were up 2-0, 3-0, possibly going up 4-0. It had the same feel to it, this match. They got those same opportunities. They put one away with Okazaki following the Vardy miss, but uh, Mares missed a penalty, which had been kind of an essential element of, of, of those previous matches. Uh, one game against uh, Everton, where they scored uh, three goals uh, at Goodison. And then... Uh, other counter opportunities where they looked very clinical, in my opinion, on the counter, but the finishing wasn't there. So the movement was still good. People were still playing the right ball, which is so important because Leicester plays the counter. You, you see other teams play the counter. I'll give the example of Stoke today when John Walters was in space right before the end of the first half and played the wrong ball. The guys on Leicester hardly ever play the wrong pass in space, and that's why they've been so good this season on the counter. Uh, the best counter-attacking team I've seen in the Premier League, maybe since Chelsea in its hay- in the heyday, uh, Mourinho's first stint, and the Avram Grant season, maybe since then. Yet, their finishing eluded them, and 
they didn't turn one into two or three, which they had ample opportunity. I mean, they could have been up three, four, five nil by the time Rudy Gestead came on, and then Villa started to create chances, and they got that draw. It's not a good enough result for Villa, but one thing I want to point out, our, our good friend Ahmed Youssef, who's, who's appeared on this podcast before, thinks that even though Villa is going to go uh, go down, maybe what we're going to see is uh, is – some real fight uh, from them, which gets their manager, Remy Gard, in the shop window for other jobs in England in the future. Hmm. Uh, interesting. Lawrence, we've talked all year about Leicester and whether they're going to regress. And now we're talking that about that through a very narrow scope. We see uh, the goals Jamie Vardy was converting in the first half of the season not being converted now. Riyad Mahrez being less prolific. They seem to be regressing. Do you expect them to recapture their first half form at any point or... Are you expecting those productive players to be kind of this version of themselves going forward? I think we'll see hints of those things. I just don't think we'll see it on, a, on such a regular basis. Um, you know, I think uh, really Leicester have reached what their target was for this season, or at least are very close to it now. I mean, you look at their, their position in the league and on 44 points, the whole point was staying up this season. And I think after that, uh, anything to that is superfluous almost. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I think... I have to say at this point, though, also, I know uh, I had not really done this analysis until yesterday after the draw where I thought where we keep thinking, OK, they're going to stop, start dropping points. And they did drop points yesterday in the game they should have won against the bottom team in the league. So they're, they're going to fall to seventh, eighth, ninth in the league. Looking at the trajectory of the teams in the league this season and then looking at Leicester's remaining fixtures, I see them at worst, finishing with 57 points, which would put them six. Now, that's absolute worst case scenario. And as I started to play out the games and just project results, which is always a dicey thing, I think that they're very – there's a greater chance right now, and I know we're going to get to our top fours later, that Leicester stays in the top four than falls out, mm-hmm. believe it or not, in spite of that result yesterday. Yeah, ESPN's Mike Goodman did a really good analysis on this and basically concluded Leicester would have to play like a a fringe Europa League team in order to maintain the top four based on not only their trajectory, but the trajectories of others around them. And, and that trajectory is what makes Manchester City's result or results recently uh, more important. They're now unbeaten five, three wins in that span. And after looking very uh, pedestrian over the last month and a half or so, they're now one point behind the leaders after their 4-0 win over Crystal Palace on Saturday. You're talking about form. You're talking about trajectory. Right now, Arsenal and Leicester are on pace for 76 points, guys. A result that would be good enough for fourth place in many years in the past in this league. And the reason I bring that up, Lawrence, is that Manchester City is a squad of players and a manager and a whole organization that has had some continuity over the last four years. And we know that this team reaching 76 points is not that big a deal, and it's probably the low end of their expectations. I guess this is less of a question of a question than just an observation that Arsenal and Leicester City seem to be setting this up perfectly for Manchester City to take this league in March and April. I was literally just about saying a season where everyone sort of goes, it's unpredictable. We never know what's going to happen. And then predictable <laughs> things happen. The thing that's happened to the last four years happens again. Yeah, we need who's the guy who predicts elections? Nate um, Silver. Nate Silver. Yeah, we need Nate Silver to do some analysis on this because I feel like he's going to basically he'll come along and he'll just say, "Yeah, City are going to are going to win it by three points." Does no one else know that? Mm-hmm. Um, and he'll he'll probably be able to predict the exact game where Arsenal <laughs> fall down again. Like I'm I'm not that that's not a compliment to him, although he's a very good analyst. Well, he actually he actually has put together something for ESPN, which we see in the states, and 
Uh, I think that that metric actually does have uh, has uh, it very close between them and Arsenal. Yeah, has Arsenal slightly ahead of uh, Manchester oh. City, but that that was well, pri- but that was prior to this weekend. Actually, the last that's time, true. Like, Nate Silver's projection. Did, that, did you, Nate? Yeah. <laughs> No, so maybe now City's ahead, actually. But uh, go ahead, Lawrence. I just want to interject that. Well, I mean, all, all I'm saying is, that, you know, I think it, in a season where people are saying it's unpredictable, I think actually it's, it is actually quite a predictable landscape. Um, and, you know, there's a difference between being in the bubble and being outside the bubble. And I just wonder if someone from outside of that would just go, yeah, it's quite clearly City, but they're going to run away with this title. Yeah. Uh, having said that, um, you know, I, I would also, I, you know, Arsenal have been one of the, if not the most consistent team in the Premier League over a very long time now. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's something that just, I, I would love it if Arsene Wenger could just win it and leave. I don't mean that because I want to get rid of him, but I just, it just a night, <laughs> please to, just let him get it. Mm. Yeah, that, that would be great if he just kind of left at the apex that he was at shortly after coming into the league. Uh, Karthik, yeah. you... For being a Manchester City fan, you always are pretty skeptical of some of the other things that people on the show tend to buy. Uh, even City's hot start to the season, you were probably one of the last people to take Chelsea off your number one spot on your list when we all had, all of us had Chelsea number one at the beginning of the season. But you were one of the last people to actually change off of that. Has the, the lack of quality around Manchester City give, increased your hopes that City can claim their third title? Oh, certainly. Arsenal, again, they're not, they're not doing enough for me to really kind of put their their foot on this thing. And 76 points actually two seasons ago would have finished fifth in the league. Yeah, I, if I remember correctly, Arsenal finished uh, fourth with 79 or 80 points. So it, it's uh, – uh, and City has, has hit 80 points – or it's, excuse me, has hit 78 points each of the last four seasons. So if 76 is in fact that number – Chances are they get there. Now that you mentioned that number, and I hadn't thought about that previously, I think uh, the other thing that to me is, is is fairly obvious is that Manchester City is winning a lot of games. They've lost more games than any of the other title contenders. And I think that might even include Manchester United. They might have lost more games or as many games as Manchester United. Yet there are fewer draws. There are when when they win, they win decisively, like this game against Palace, four uh, nil, and the goal difference pops up and then there's just this feeling again of inevitability and, and this kind of intimidation factor. If you fall behind Manchester city in a game, you don't think you're going to come back against Arsenal. We saw it the other night where Liverpool was able to come back at the death, Joe Allen with that goal. And you think that's typical Arsenal. Hmm. Lawrence, let's talk about the other side of the result that the Eddie had. Uh, Crystal Palace now hasn't scored in five matches. They only have two points in that time. From the edge of the top four, they're now sliding down to mid-table. What's your impression of what's going on with the Eagles? Hi, Alan Pardew. How Alan Pardew's there? going on. Yeah, Alan Pardew's partly going on. Uh, um, you know, it's partly the Pardew effect. Is that Initially, he's very good at engaging and enabling those players. I think we highlighted at the beginning of the season, you know, if you engage egos and you sort of continually bring those things up, it feels like it can go on for such a long time. And I do think there, a, there is a very good feeling because of the fans around that club. Um, I think a lot of people are very cynical about him. And a lot of Newcastle fans are kind of saying, welcome to what happened to us. Mm. Um, oh, I get, like, because... I get like two or three of those tweets after every Palace result from uh, Newcastle fans tweeting at me, hey, we told you so. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I... I think I did highlight on this podcast, you know, if you engage egos and you're a massive ego yourself, it's like putting one burning block of wood against another. 
it's going to ignite it and it'll burn just as bright, but it doesn't mean that that ultimately stops. Interesting. Uh, for me, there's just some glaring things that I, I'm scratching my head. Why is Pardew doing this? The first is, why isn't Julian Speroni playing at this point? Wayne Hennessy now with two mistakes in the last two games that are just so demoralizing for a team that is really scrounging and trying to fight for results at this point. If you're the other 10 guys in the field and you're, you feel like you're on that edge of being of being troubled already of having trouble finding your form and the, your goalkeeper is not keeping you in these games that that's really demoralizing and the other thing too is the way that he set up against city where there was absolutely nothing con- connecting connor wickham hanging out in the center circle to the rest of the team so throughout the whole first half city is able to win balls with their two deep midfielders fabian delph and fernandinho or with their fullbacks not going fully up but getting the ball as they're going to the the punch-ins and the zahas of the world and crystal palace never getting a foothold in this game until like the 35 40 minute mark when they then they start to build something it's just little things like that and i, I think it's so juxtaposed against city is it becomes pronounced even more because City goes back to that tried and true Pellegrini formation of using those two interiores. This weekend it was De Bruyne and Silva to connect two deep midfielders to two forwards. It's it's a formula that we've seen work so many different places with Pellegrini, and they really I think um, although the opposition was really weak this weekend, uh, City did look pretty good. At least they were prolific. Let's transition. Let's talk about Tottenham very quickly. Last game we're going to talk about in this segment: Kartik four to one result here. Uh, things really got going in the second half for Tottenham, scoring three goals after the break. A bunch of freak goals here, even though it was still a pretty one-sided game. Yeah, a couple a couple freak goals. Uh, what a, a nightmare for Kirchhoff, a, a defender that I liked uh, in, in early in his career when he, he was at Bayern and, and, and at Schalke on loan. Uh, but just a disastrous performance for him after coming on. Uh, he, he didn't play well. I, I think the young... Uh, Sunderland keeper, I'm forgetting his name. His name eludes me. Played very well. Jordan I felt Pickford. Bad. Jordan Pickford. I felt I felt bad for him, but uh, it's this is becoming very kind of Spurs like, right? They they either have run rampant uh, on a team after they make a mistake, or they struggle to get a goal, and that's uh, I, I guess that doesn't make them that different than Arsenal or Manchester City, but. It's again another frustrating thing against Leicester. They had one or two sniffs, and that was it. And Leicester ran out of that match, in my opinion, midweek deserved winners at White Hart Lane. This week, or this match, they are playing. I thought pretty poorly for the first forty minutes. Get the break, get the mistake, and before you know it, they're all over them. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where I guess you could say good teams and title-winning teams and top four teams take advantage of those mistakes, but. At the same time, Spurs aren't as convincing as I would like to see them be. Yeah, I thought they, the score flattered them a bit too. Uh, Lawrence Kartik alluded to that mistake that brought them back into the match. Lee Catterall clearing Christian Benteke's shot against the bottom of the bar goes in. Worst own goal this week, that Catterall clearance, which technically wasn't an own goal. Christian Eriksen got credit for that. Or John Terry uh, clearing a ball off of his left knee into Everton's goal. That's worst and best goals of the weekend. There's nothing more satisfying <laughs> than John Terry scoring uh, a backheeled own goal into his own goal and then a backheeled offside goal That's into amazing. the opposition's goal. It's just, it's such highs and lows. That man. I love it. That man. But then also, obviously, you, uh, uh, the reason Catamol doesn't get that is because it was on target. 
Uh, yeah, he gets a bit bailed out there. Still a remarkable clearance for Lee Catamull. We have to give him some credit there. <laughs> Everybody, we're going to take our break right now. Come back. We're going to update you on the weekend in Spain, what happened in the championship on Saturday. Get to our players of the week and then talk about the other matches in the 22nd round of the Premier League. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. To Europe, where we are still one week shy of the Bundesliga's return. Thankfully, Spain has not forsaken us, nor has Real Madrid's goals. After putting up five last week against Deportivo La Coruña in Zinedine Zidane's debut, Los Blancos recharged this midweek, free of all Copa del Rey obligations, and put up five more this weekend. 19th place Sporting had to content themselves with a consolation goal after braces from Cristiano Ronaldo and Karim Benzema followed a Gareth Bale opener, Real Madrid eventually posting a 5-1 result at the Santiago Bernabeu. Elsewhere, Atletico continued their winning ways at Las Palmas, posting yet another clean clean sheet with a 3-0 win. They now have as many clean sheets, 13, as Arsenal has league wins this year. Valencia is still winless in league under Gary Neville, being drawn 2-2 at home by relegation in Battle Royale Viacano. And Villarreal finally stumbled a little. The league's fourth-place team was held nil-nil by newly peppy Melis Real Batiste. As for Barcelona, well, hosting Athletic in the weekend's final game, Barcelona were allowed to play 86 minutes up a man. Predictable result, a 6-0 win for Spain's holders, pulling them back within two of Atleti with a game in hand. Down in the championship, Middlesbrough finally lost with 22nd place Bristol City pulling off a shock 1-0 upset, ending Burrow's five-match league winning streak and nine-match league unbeaten run. That allowed Hull to move within two points of the top after their 6-0 pasting of Wayward Charlton. Derby stays in third place despite an embarrassing 3-0 loss at home to Birmingham City with Burnley, newly victorious Brighton, and Sheffield Wednesday rounding out the league's top other playoff spots. Player of the week time, gentlemen, Kartik, you do the honors. Okay, this was a a bit of a a tough decision, and I guess I'm going to make it on the fly because I've got a couple of candidates. Uh, I've got uh, Daniels, who you mentioned, uh, who we're going to talk about from Bournemouth, uh, who I thought was so good cutting in uh, from from, from wide areas and and really finding space and dictating play for Bournemouth. Uh, Christian Eriksen, who we've talked about, Bobby and Delph, who we've talked about. I guess I'm going to go with... um, Let's go with Daniels. Let's give it to the to the to the young man from the Cherries. <laughs> it's nice to go with a fullback every once in a while. I like that. Yes, it is. Um, and, he, and he was getting he was getting to wide areas uh, so easily uh, with overlapping runs in this game. Uh, I, I'm, we haven't talked about the game yet, so we'll talk about that. Yeah, we'll have plenty to talk about with him because they did steer a lot of their play down that left hand side. Uh, I'm going to go with a Newcastle United player, apropos because I thought Newcastle was as impressive on Saturday as they've been all season. And while John Joe Shelby certainly deserves a lot of plaudits, probably the combined lengths of his passes this weekend, uh, a season high for any player. I'm going to go with the person that benefited a lot from John Joe Shelby's work, and that's Jorginho Wijnaldum. Uh, Wijnaldum really making a lot of great decisions over that first 30 minutes, setting up Iose Perez's goal with a deft touch and scoring the second goal with a nice run to get on the end of Daryl Janmat's ball. Wijnaldum is a player that has been very good this year, particularly at home where he has all nine of his goals, but he's been overshadowed a little bit by a Newcastle attack that's gone absent sometimes and a team that's struggled in the relegation zone throughout the season but beating West Ham ending West Ham's unbeaten run I thought that he was the star of the day and he's my star of the week Lawrence a couple of uh, nominations for this can I go Benicophobi just as the newest signing mm-hmm. uh, I'm, and then I'm actually going to go with uh, Tottenham Hotspur's 
main man, not Harry Kane, Christian Eriksen this mm. weekend. Two goals against a side that guaranteed, uh, you know, uh, guaranteed always to capitulate against this team, but did capitulate uh, because of some great work by these guys. And I think um, uh, Christian Eriksen is one of those players that if Spurs are to build in the long term, then they've got someone talented there that's going to buy them that time to be able to do so. Um, and so at this point, I think he's pretty key to the project in that sense. Um, and, you know, that really showed this weekend, I think, in his play and the way that he knitted things together out there on the left. Um, he, he affords other players out in the pitch space, not least Harry Kane, that space to kind of run into just in front of the defence and continually pummel that. So uh, credit to him. I, th- I think that's where I'm going with him. Gentlemen, we mentioned him last segment, but none of us mentioned him in our Player of the Week nominations. John Terry had a highly impactful game at Stamford Bridge on Saturday. He scored the first goal of the day, a six-goal day, albeit into the wrong net, uh, an own goal in the 50th minute. But then eight minutes into stoppage time, he scored a highly controversial equalizer that earned Chelsea a point three three draw between Chelsea and Everton on Saturday. Kartik, let's get to the controversy at the end of this discussion because I feel like that's going to take some time. Uh, it certainly was the talking point for not only Roberto Martinez coming out of this one. Let's talk about the game in general because I thought this game played out almost as you would predict, two highly talented but highly flawed teams uh, to play a match. A lot of goals, a lot of goals off of mistakes, a lot of goals off of randomness, and ultimately just chaos settling with no clear team being better than the other. Yeah, complete chaos. And I think Everton has now once again shown that they can hold a lead when they get get in front, that their back line, uh, there are significant issues with them and that they have a, a problem kind of consolidating midfield. And Gareth Barry had a very poor game. Obviously, I'm a big fan of his. He's been the show you know, for a while. I thought he was very poor in midfield. But they're so good on the break, particularly against a team that, that is as slow and as uh, not just in, 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 in pace, but slow in thought as the back line of Chelsea. So they were able to, uh, to take advantage of that. But uh, I, I have a lot of concerns about Everton under Martinez. As far as Chelsea, they're still unbeaten under heating, but they're not getting wins. This is two uh, draws in a row, and they should not have drawn this match. Uh, this is two draws, though, two points from, from this homestand against West Brom and Everton, two very winnable games, two teams in the bottom half of the table, along with Chelsea. Chelsea couldn't get a win against either at the bridge, and now they're back out uh, on the road. So, uh, look, uh, I, I think we're, we're, we're saying that Chelsea's not in this relegation fight, but considering that I can't figure out who else is going to go down besides Aston Villa for, on a week-to-week basis, maybe the Swans are now, uh, maybe they're, 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 they're going to get cut adrift sooner or later if, if things don't change. Chelsea is in that mix. And they're not getting results to get them out of that mix. We thought they'd climb up the table and push for a European spot, right? That was a narrative even a week ago. Well, right? N- Napoon still thinks that, so let's be respectful here. Right, but that was a narrative. I mean, I still thought that uh, a week ago yeah. Sunday. A week ago at this time, I still thought that they had gotten the FA Cup result. They had gone to Palace and beaten them 3-0 in the previous uh, Premier League match. They come home and have these two matches. They are in a relegation fight, at least for the foreseeable future. Maybe not all the way until May. But for the next few weeks, they're in a relegation. Mm-hmm. 
Lawrence, I know Karchik still has a lot of reservations about Roberto Martinez, reservations he talked about a week and a half ago when we had our show detailing managers, uh, but you weren't on that show. And one thing you and I have in I common don't. is that we actually still have confidence in Roberto Martinez if our rankings are anything to go by. You and I were the two people that had Martinez in our top eight managers in the league, uh, Nipun and Kartik, much more skeptical of him. Mm. Talk about that a little bit because we haven't given you the opportunity to talk about that. And when people see results like Saturdays and Everton again giving up a goal late, the the finger naturally has to be pointed somewhere. And a lot of people are pointing it at Roberto Martinez. Yeah, I, I still think he has a job to do. But I guess I just appreciate part of that as the process. I guess uh, the criticism of Martinez would be the same criticism we were making earlier is, you know, the results or sort of the mix of practical and uh, philosophy um, and that doesn't always work. Um, you know, there's a lot of theories which suggest that certain systems are going to suit certain teams better. And I think Kartik puts a good one forward that actually um, the, the, the idea, the ideas of Moy seem to fit and gel very well with the way that Everton were playing and wanted to play. But th- there's a lot of scepticism around that. I think ultimately the, the reason that Everton lost this Oh, sorry. Lost out. Lost the three points in this game. Feels like was a loss. because they were let down by very poor decision. So let's let's talk about that, guys. We always find a way to avoid talking about video review because it is kind of a bit of a trite conversation that there really aren't very many new angles that come up with it. But every once in a while, it is good to throw out what our opinions are and go over those angles. And on a weekend where we had John Terry clearly offside on the last goal deep into stoppage time. It's very easy to see where video review would have had an impact. Or even you can go to Villa Park where Rudy Justed clearly had a handball before getting his shot off for the equalizer for Aston Villa against Leicester. So you had the game at Stamford Bridge costing Everton two points and a title contender losing two points on game on results that could be reviewable. Let's narrow our discussion of video review down to a concept of it where you're only reviewing situations that involve goals, or straight red cards, situations where you could say play is stopped anyway. Where do you stand on the use of video review, Lawrence, that type of video review? Uh, if play stops, then I'm 100% for it. For me, it's more of a question of uh, not if, but when with video reviews on this. I don't, I, you know, with a, a league with such budget and a league which is looking to maintain itself as one of the best betting leagues in the world and somewhere you want to put your money, um, I think that they're going to have to do that. Um, and so I think whether the play stops or not, it seemed very clear to a lot of people that the player got the flick on and it, you know, it, it, basically while the referee, if the referee even stops it for a couple of seconds, you can have one team, even two teams there. It was, it's just, it was very, uh, it seemed very clear to the naked eye. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, marginal decisions where it's about intent here. Not yet. Anyway, I'm talking about very clear offsides where it's just very difficult for a linesman to look at that because maybe there's a player in between them or something like that. So that's what I'm talking about is that if it's implemented like that, I don't see it as a slippery slope because I don't think it's a bad thing to do. It's just, it, basically we still live in a place where the lex- we still live in the time where the lexicon sort of favors skepticism about this kind of thing. Cause people still say, Oh, he was foiled by the goal line technology. And you're just like, no, it wasn't foiled. It's just, that's the same as sort of saying like the murderer, uh, you know, the, the murderer had to go to prison because of the injustice of the legal system, and he was found <laughs> guilty by that video evidence. Yeah, somebody's been it watching making a murderer. Kartik, uh, I think Lawrence brings up a good point, but it's also kind of a generational, uh, demographic and a geographic point too. The type of 
language that he talks about is basically com- comes out of England. And England, of course, has a huge say in this because it's their league. But it's also a generation of people in England, the previous generation, who talk about the game in those ways. Whereas more fans from around the world being introduced to the league, having kind of a voice in how the league is marketed and portrays itself, look at the game in a totally different way. And they don't define it in terms of, oh, you know, this is this is how it's traditionally done, or you're going to ruin the game if you have this very limited piece of review. And in that sense, it seems like we're at a more temporal uh, conflict than an actual conflict as to whether goal a video review can help the game. Yeah, I think there, there's kind of a traditional way of looking at this and, and a feeling that also you don't want to uh, impact, uh, you don't want to humiliate a referee by overturning a call. That's been part of the, the narrative, although maybe that that's, uh, maybe that that's a, uh, something just to kind of cover not wanting to necessarily bring this into the game. I, I'm, I'm with Lawrence on this in that if there's a natural stoppage of play, which is what our head of officials here in the United States with PRO, uh, Peter Walton, who is a former Premier League official, long-time Premier League, has said that in, in terms of Major League Soccer and the third division, USL bringing in video, video replay, uh, potentially this season is that it will only occur if there's a natural stoppage. There's an injury or there's a goal or there's some sort of stoppage. We're not going to stop and say, Hey, blow a whistle. ask if there's a water break and then uh, look at replay. So I, I, I'm for it in that sense. I think we do have to adjust our expectations in this, uh, in that there is right now a, an ability for the Premier League because of the vast riches of the English top to tough flight to do this. And they should do it. But other leagues around the world don't necessarily have the resources or the camera angles or the television coverage to do this properly. So uh, Major League Soccer seems to think they do. I'm not sure they do, but they're, they're going to try it. Gentlemen, let's move on to the other three games we haven't talked about yet. Kartik, Newcastle, 2-1 to victory over West Ham. To me, as good as Newcastle has looked all year against a good West Ham team. Yeah, West Ham didn't play badly either. I, I thought they played well, but Newcastle... I keep saying they're going to come good. I'm going to say it again. Uh, this is kind of what I expected. It took uh, some time, obviously. Uh, the, the, sh- the players that have been brought into this Newcastle side have all come from uh, the Belgian or the Dutch leagues or the French league. So it takes some time to acclimate to England. And now they make the big buy of John Joe Shelby from Swansea. And he looked very good in this game. Looked widely, looked like very creative. Of course, we know Shelby is really hit or miss. So he's going to miss at some point soon. Lawrence, let's move I on to that about West Ham and Payet and any of those other guys. You know, Shelby's had as many good games as Payet. Oh, Payet. Payet is. Shelby's never oh, been as good as Payet. Lawrence, I wouldn't compare those two players. I mean, Shelby is an inconsistent player. He's never reached a heights that Payet ha- had at either Marseille or he has this season for West Ham. When he's been fit, West Ham's been one of the best teams in the league and he's been the reason. So I, I, don't, I don't even want to compare those two guys. I- and I understand what you're saying by that, but at the same time, I do feel there's a lot of hyperbole that surrounds West Ham very often. And there was a really good analyst on YouTube who used lots of, a lot of Michael Cayley stuff and then some of his own theory called Joel Salmon. Uh, I think he's also called Messy Minutes on um, Twitter. You can go and look him up. And um, he was doing a piece about how, uh, you know, a, a lot of the time what West Ham have is a very high above the average statistics. And I'm not necessarily saying we compare the two directly, but I'm saying maybe we should apply some of the same logic or rhetoric that we apply to, um, to Leicester Shelby to, to Leicester and also to West Ham and to a couple mm-hmm. of those other guys, because West Ham, you know, I mean, in this game, 
you know, if we want to talk about West Ham as one of those teams that's competing to be in Europe and those kind of things, then hold them by that same uh, logic and, uh, you know, sort of overall system. And I'm not saying Pyatt's a bad player, far from, completely opposite. I think you go toe-to-toe with some of the best in the world. But overall, when it comes to analysing West Ham, let's go maybe a little bit further than, um, you know, just they were bad in this game. There's a reason behind that, and it's it is partly the system that they choose to employ, and then partly the players they've put within that system. They weren't bad in this game. They created plenty of goal scoring opportunities, and Payet was central to a lot of those. Yeah, I think but they, they didn't just... put them away. They didn't put them away, and and Liverpool, you know, the same can be applied to Liverpool or Manchester United or a number of players within this league. By the Liverpool they, technically. They... They've been putting them away typically uh, this season, whereas Liverpool have not. So that's why. Well, for quite a long time, West they actually... have a little more rope than what Liverpool. They're a better team than Liverpool. They've beaten Liverpool twice this season anyway. They have beaten Liverpool twice this season, but then you'd say maybe they wouldn't have beaten Liverpool twice this season if Liverpool had actually turned up to either, either of those games. And also in the interim period when Pio was out, that was when they particularly took their dip. And what I'm saying is that, that, it, that then we've got to ask questions about that and why they would have taken that dip, particularly when Pio is out. And, you know, the, the Pyatt free kick that everyone's raving about is vision. Those things are all fantastic. I'm not taking away from that. All I'm saying is that I think that there's a bit more nuance to it than they were good or they were bad. I think sometimes West Ham themselves as a team suffer from that sort of analysis because actually uh, they could move even further and faster. And actually, I think Golden Sullivan get away with quite a lot because people put them on such a binary spectrum. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, let's move on, guys. Let's talk about Bournemouth Norwich three 0 victory for Eddie Howe's side going up after ten minutes, never looking back. As Lawrence alluded to, Benekafobi got on the board his second match with uh, the Cherries. Um, I believe it was his first start. I, I can't. No, it was his second start. Uh, Kartik Bournemouth looked like a very, very confident side at this point, spending some money to bring in some players. Still struggling near the relegation zone, but certainly in the way that they go about their game, they they look better than the people that are around them in the table oh they certainly do and a phobie is not a player i thought they were going to get or a turbe who they brought in uh, also who, who we haven't spoken about yet or at least i haven't spoken about him on the show uh, coming in from roma who had such a great year at, at verona a few seasons ago i i um am impressed by the money they're spending yeah, I think their, their net spend has to be somewhere close to 50 this year between their summer signings and what they brought in because they already spent something like 20 million euros this window alone yeah, and then previously on Mings and, and Gradle, who are injured, both those players, but they spent a lot of money. And uh, this uh, Afobe buy, for me, was a statement of intent, because I was talking to a, a, a friend of mine who supports Wolves a week and a half ago, and he was wondering, well, which big club is going to come in for him? Is it going to be uh, 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 an Everton? Is it going to be a Liverpool? Could Liverpool come in for Afobe? <laughs> I mean, we, uh, and we were thinking about teams. Maybe Manchester United needs a backup striker. Lo and behold, Bournemouth is the one who meets their asking price and secures him toward the beginning of the window. And he's already integrated into the team and scoring goals and, and uh, contributing to other guys scoring goals. A fantastic bit of business from Eddie Howe. And then on the other hand... The business, but then on the spectrum, there's the Southampton business, isn't there? The Southampton business? What do you, what do you mean by the that? The Southampton business. Who did they get? They got Charlie Austin. Oh, they did. Well, we're going to talk... Yes, they... They did another very good piece of business, although that might be worth talking about in the next segment. We're going to talk about transfers, but Austin cost about one-third of a phobie. That's very interesting. Um, I hadn't even thought about it from that point of view, Lawrence. Let's talk about Southampton right now, though. They uh, beat West Brom 3-0. Uh, Lawrence, two goals from uh, Ward-Prowse. Uh, constel- uh, not a constellation goal, insurance goal from Dusan Tadic. I-, I was far more informed by West Brom than Southampton in this one. I just... 
I just think West Brom continues to look like a bad team. Although maybe, um, maybe you see it another way. Maybe you see this as Southampton uh, stemming a tide, so to speak. Yeah, to some extent. And I also feel like the, the comments from Ronald Koeman over the last week have been quite informative the way that he feels about the club, speaking about whether they match his expectations, which is quite interesting. Um, and then also the, the, some of the combination play up front. I mean, you know, he says there's not going to be any outs there. I think that's probably very encouraging for the Southampton uh, players and also the, the Southampton fans right now. Uh, it, it was a it was a performance which I think Southampton have been lacking recently. Um, and you know, we, we speak in, you speak in the spectrum of good and bad. I think this is a very good result for them hmm. because look at the way that they've crafted the goals. Look at the people who crafted the goals, and then go a step further than that. And I think that they're, they're going to add to that very soon. Yeah, good performances from Davis and Long stand out to me. Uh, Kartik, some feedback from Twitter from Robert in SoCal. He asks, uh, should people rethink Southampton now that Forster is back? He was a key member to their success last year before his injury. And you and I have both been very down on the Saints over the last month, two months. Uh, to me, I think Fraser Forster is a very good goalkeeper. And yeah, I, I think this tweet has me pausing for a little bit and reconsidering things. Yeah, that's some great feedback, actually. And thank you for that. I, I agree. I think Fraser Forster is one of the top keepers in England and he in fact is so impressive that Javi a couple of years ago named him to one of his best 11 team uh, when asked uh, and, and that was when Forrester was at Celtic so yeah that could very much uh, account for this uptick from Southampton they've been very good this week last break coming up we've got top fours we've got transfer talk and then we're going to look forward to Monday's match at the Liberty Stadium as well as the four FA Cup third round replays that the Premier League teams are involved in stay with us this is the World Soccer Talk podcast Last segment of the show, our top four is a point where you guys all get to argue with us about what we get wrong. Uh, Lawrence, you first. Uh, Arsenal, Man City. Oh, good one here. Uh, Spurs, Manchester United. Boom. Same at the end of the season. Eat that. <laughs> very quick, very succinct, and a lot to argue with there. Kartik. Thank you. Uh, right now, Arsenal, Leicester, Man United, Southampton. Uh, end of season, Arsenal, Man City, Man United. Leicester hmm. uh, Spurs I, 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 not, I not that I want to drop Spurs I had Spurs in my list until United got that Rooney goal and I decided based on the metric I figured out since I actually did some research this week and some work rather than just doing it on a whim which I do every week Leicester's going to make the top four I've made that decision based just on percentages and, and looking at fixtures so I had to put them fourth so I had Spurs third swap them out for Man United that could easily be swapped uh, that swap could easily be back and forth uh, for the next couple of weeks. As far as my form top four, I love that we do this just because it's so ridiculous in this league this year to do anything based on form because none of these teams have any meaningful form. I think the longest winning streak right now is two games. The longest unbeating streak is five. So City, Arsenal, Leicester, Spurs. I think, yeah, sure, why not? And United could have gotten to that top four. End of season top four, Arsenal and City, 1-2. I think we all have that at this point. Then I have Leicester and Spurs. Uh, and those last two spots just very indicative of the fact that I'm I'm not confident in anything in this league beyond that top two. All right, gentlemen, three major transfers. I, I guess I wouldn't call any of these major transfers, but they're more major than the loans and the end of loans that are also going on during the window. Uh, certainly Arsenal fans, Kartik, will think that the acquisition of Egyptian midfielder Mohamed El Neni is somewhat major, given their need in midfield with the absence of uh, Francis, Francis Coquelin. I don't know a lot about this player besides what I've seen for Basel, and it seems like a good fit. It does seem like a good fit, and I guess Gunnar's fans will be relieved that Wenger is actually going out 
and addressing a need in the January w- window. They were top of the table two seasons ago, and he went out and get, got Kim Schalstrom. That didn't work out. This seems like a better fit, better idea, a younger player, a guy that actually fits a need. And Lauren, somebody that you brought up earlier in the show, Charlie Austin. I got the numbers a little bit wrong. It isn't three times cheaper than uh, Benekafobi, but he is moving to nice. Southampton for 5.7 million euros. Benekafobi was 13.3 million euros. Um, just the thoughts on this as far as the fit is concerned. I, I guess it makes sense to me. I just didn't really see a team that already had Graziano Pele and Shane Long going out there and getting another striker, but maybe they felt they needed one. Different kind of striker, different strokes for different folks. Um, it works, I think, and I'm calling it now. Uh, basically, though, I think that the main reason he was so cheap is possibly fitness, right? Um, and I think that that's probably part of his, his sale market is it, that he has to prove that at this point. Oh, and, get, and getting his salary off of QPR's books. That's also, pa- I mean, yeah, I mean, Kartik's watching the four year plan again, like he does every two weeks. Um, <laughs> so he's yeah, busy talking about cash. Mm. But, um, but the same, I mean, there's been a couple of interesting managers words this weekend. You know, I mean, uh, you can talk about Pardew and the way that he spoke about Hennessy, and you can also speak about Kuman and the very, straight uh straight to the point way that both of those guys have spoken about the way the player needs to prove themselves here um and then also i guess you could say the same for lvg and uh wayne rooney wayne rooney's smashing records this weekend and manchester united getting their hundredth goal at anfield carter can charlie austin play his way into england's euro squad yeah uh, i i'm not sure <laughs> I, I think probably not i i think that there are enough strikers that are doing well uh, with vardy Harry Kane, and then there's going to be a spot saved for either Sturridge or Welbeck, and then you've got Rooney, so probably not. Yeah. I guess I'm still shocked the fact that Charlie Austin got was getting recalls. It was 18 months ago or last summer, so... Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Maybe that wasn't such a great question. Uh, another striker, uh, Damian Doe coming back from Turkey, uh, not going back to Hull, going to Sunderland. He's on a six, a four month, four month loan. No, six, that'd be a six month loan. Uh, seemingly helping Sunderland's depth at striker, uh, Kartik is somebody that Sam Allardyce has wanted for some time, but also seems to be a very different player than the person that's working for them right now, Jermaine Defoe. Right, and Doy fits the way Allardyce wants to play, or typically prefers to play, which is why he had targeted this player uh, when he got to Sunderland. Obviously, the window was closed, and uh, Hull had uh, sold him, or had loaned him out, I think. No, no, they had sold him uh, to Turkey. But now Defoe, knowing the player is coming in, has now all of a sudden found some form, and you're seeing a a team kind of built around Defoe. Also, and Doy is, is a good striker. We saw him almost keep pulling the league last season. He was the only reason they had a chance to get themselves out of uh, trouble last season because he came in uh, came in from Russia and did very, very well. He acclimated to the league very quickly. So it's a good signing. But I wonder, Sunderland now has gone through however many managers who have been given an, basically an open checkbook by Ellis Short, and they have so many strikers on their books right now. Why do they need to add another one? Uh, Big Sam, who uh, everybody who listens to this podcast know, I, I think very highly of him. But why couldn't he make do with, with Fletcher or Borini or, uh, or uh, Danny Graham? Why did he have to go by and do it? That's, uh, that's a big question. Hmm. Let's shift our focus to Monday's game in the Premier League, Swansea City hosting Watford, although our focus isn't going to be so much on the game as much as news coming out of England on Sunday. Uh, Swansea City 
as of the time of this recording, telling Sky Sports that they're very close to appointing 40 Udinese head coach Francesco Gurelin as their, quote, head coach. That's the position that they identify, still saying that Alan Curtis is going to be the manager and kind of being the outward face of the team, while the man that took Udinese to back-to-back fourth and third place finishes recently in City A comes in trying to keep Swans in the first division. Lawrence, what's your reaction to this? I think Swansea, uh, consistently people have questioned uh, the, their employment of different managers or sort of said, you know, it's all part of a timeline. I think more recently that's fallen off um, just because, you know, people believe that, the you know, the notoriety of the manager is is part part of that. I, 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 I think I trust overall in the Swansea system. I just think in recent years it's become more difficult as they've tried to climb higher and higher. I think to some extent the club plateaued. And I think now they're looking for people to keep them at that level. Hmm. Kartik, I, you, I, I just don't know if that's possible. Kartik, you pointed out as we were coming into this segment that uh, Gudelin had left Udinese to join the Pozo Consortium to be their kind of overarching technical director in not only acquiring talent, but then allocating that talent between Udinese, Granada, and Watford. And now he's leaving that consortium, or it's assumed that he's leaving. We don't know for sure what that right. what's going on there, but he's going from a job close to Watford to a job with Swansea. Yeah. Very curious appointment for me, Richard. I, I first off, as a manager, I read Ray Goodaline very highly. I thought he did a great job of doing and had that team clicking on all cylinders in Serie A, albeit in a, in a point where Serie A was kind of uh, uh, in a weak state in their top four, just like the Premier League is right now, kind of a very similar time. Uh, but what I'm curious about is the last I had tracked him, he was still, buying players for Watford and that turned out pretty well but he was he was responsible for the transfers for Watford this past summer when they bought something like 13 guys uh, mostly from the continent and brought them to England and, and molded a team for Kiki Sanchez Flores who came in to the club in the middle of the summer right he wasn't even the manager of the full the full preseason so I, I'm kind of curious as to when he severed his relationship with the Pozo family, if this is a loan from one Premier League club to another, technically, uh, what, what exactly is going on? And ironically enough, they're playing Watford in his first match as head coach if he does, in fact, get this appointment. So I think it's a good appointment. I, I rate him highly, but curious as to his job status at his previous employer or his current employer or whatever it is. Hmm. FA Maybe they don't mind. <laughs> eh, it's cool. Don't worry. It's only Swansea. <laughs> they're no threat to us yeah maybe yeah, he's, exactly. just, he, he's just going out on loan like so many other players from the Pozo Consortium uh, FA Cup third round replays midweek four of them involving Premier League teams on Tuesday Red Hot Bristol City after defeating Middlesbrough they host West Brom almost have to think Bristol City might be the favorite there uh, Aston Villa welcoming Wickham Wanderers to Villa Park on Wednesday Liverpool against Exeter and then the marquee matchup of the midweek kind of round. Uh, Leicester and Tottenham, another game. We've seen two very good games between these sides, Lawrence, over the last week. What do you think, what what do you make of this kind of round three of this matchup? And at some point, doesn't it take a toll on these teams having to play these extra high intensity fixtures in a time when both of them are really fighting for top four? It takes its toll on one team in that sense. Um, Although I think that the rotation in the last game was actually quite interesting, wasn't it? I mean, look back at the the fielding of both those sides, which I can for you because I'm just about to open it up. One moment, please. 
This is a good podcast for here. Yeah, I know, right? Um, and you look at the way that uh, Leicester rotated. I mean, you know, they they had Gray, Dyer, King lower in there. Inla started in the midfield, which some people thought were unusual. Italians sort of question why he hasn't been doing that for a long time. Um, and the back line was a complete change. So, uh, you know, it, essentially for Leicester, it was a chance to experiment. And it looks as if it, it was the same for Tottenham in there. They started Hume and Song. Uh, their back line uh, remained relative together, but Vaughan in there, it was in there and those kind of things. So I think that for both sides, it, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of an experimentation place is not necessarily the biggest distraction, but you still want to keep the morale up within a squad as cliched a uh, response as that is. I think the bigger match is probably the one between uh, Liverpool next up, because if you look at them in the last game, uh, it, it was kind of confusing post-match. They were talking as if, you know, do they respect Dexter? Don't they respect Dexter? And it's just a stupid question. Again, more old English rhetoric about respecting another side and the assumption that if you don't play your first team, it's somehow disrespectful. Hmm. We'll have a brief look at those third round replays midweek when Nipun Chopra joins us for the midweek show. Kartik Krishnar is also going to be back midweek as we start to ask why the presence of American players is waning so much in the Premier League. There's that word you love, Lawrence Wayne. Uh, until then, for everybody at the we'll World Soccer Talk family, <laughs> for Lawrence McKenna, I'm Richard Farley. Kartik? The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is L-O-Z-C-A-S-T, Lawscast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra 7. Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at worldsoccertalk.com.